0: when you experience something difficult, to take time to feel what emotion, whatever emotion comes up, to process it and look after yourself throughout that. So it's not just, you know, expose yourself to the pain and be overwhelmed. It's also find ways to self-soothe through that and look after yourself in the way that you would with somebody else.
1: I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher, and each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. I'm thrilled to share that my book, How to Be Sad, is now on sale wherever you buy your books in the US. You can find it on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks, and I'd love to hear what you think. Today's guest has more than three million followers and 32 million likes, but she's not your typical social media influencer. Dr. Julie Smith is the first mental health professional to start using TikTok as a platform for therapy. She's a clinical psychologist and former NHS staffer who now works in private practice as well as an online educator. Her daily posts have become a lifeline for many. She gets thousands of messages a day telling her how she's changing lives. She says now, while there are lots of ways to reduce the intensity of anxiety, we must be willing to experience it. When you can't stop fear, take it with you. That thing you want to do, do it scared because the things that we do most become our comfort zone. So Dr. Julie, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Most people will of course know who you are, but if anyone who's not familiar with perhaps even TikTok, can you pl- little, let us know a little bit more about how you joined TikTok only a year ago, is that right, to reach a younger audience and what spurred you on to, to do that?
0: Yeah. So it was November, 2019, I think. And well, I was starting to kind of put a few videos on YouTube and things like that. And, and I wanted to, to share some of the sort of educational resources that come out of of therapy and make those more available to people. And at the same time, my husband discovered TikTok and we thought, well, that, you know, that's a nice sort of fun platform. We immediately found it quite sort of, you know, addictive and we liked all the kind of comedy and dancing on there I didn't see anyone on there talking about mental health so it was a little bit petrifying to sort of do something brand new and uh, we thought we'd just give it a go and then if nobody wanted to hear it then the views wouldn't be there and we would disappear and pretend it never happened so but turns out you know people were hungry for that sort of information so it took off quite quickly and then through lockdown in 2020 Everyone was at home downloading TikTok and also starting to talk about their mental health and how the pandemic was influencing that. So uh, it was a sort of perfect storm, if you like.
1: And I think a lot of the the information that you are sharing, you've mentioned before that I know that a lot of us don't learn this at school. A lot of people aren't aware of perhaps how their brain works. Was, was that something that surprised you? Uh, well,
0: I think I didn't know, you know, much of this stuff either, you know, so it was only once I, you know, became a psychologist and I was doing all the training and I was reading, uh, you know, and I, I love reading lots of, uh, you know, I read all Sort of non-fiction psychology books, really, and so you know I'm absorbing all this information and, and finding it useful myself. But also, when people come along to therapy, one element of that is educational. So you know there is the other aspect of things where you you go through things and formulate with people, but there are just some sort of basic skills that people can learn in therapy. But I found that lots of people, once they had that, they found it really empowering and it really gave them a shift. And some people were, you know, then ready to go and and they felt empowered to look after their own mental health from there. So that was where I kind of, do you know what? People shouldn't have to pay to come see a therapist to find that out. This is life skills and, um, you know, we should make it more available. So after sort of, you know, chanting on about that too much, my husband said, well, go on then, go and make it happen. (laughs) So I had to.
1: (laughs) But I mean that that's is very generous and and sounds completely sensible and makes sense. I wonder, was there any pushback within within your your peers and your community of of Uni you know, Uni saying actually this should be free, this information should be out there? Sure. Well, um that was my biggest fear actually was you know, what
0: will my peers say? And there's a sort of um uh you know, you, you get these thoughts that that because you're stepping outside of the norm and doing something different, that everybody will, will judge that and not like it. And that fear was unfounded. And and actually, all of the feedback I've had from peers, both psychologists, um, therapists, but also in the medical community, so doctors and and GPs that I I know, have been really, really positive and recommending the the content to, you know, sort of people that they have come across in, in work and, and home life. So that to me is a sort of big, a big thing that helps me to feel confident that I'm sort of, doing the right thing and so you know because that that is the fear isn't it that everybody else that you work with will think that you're doing something awful so yeah the, the fact that they see it as a positive thing as well is is a good
1: sort of validation for me and I was watching one of your videos this morning and it's a lot of effort. You know, you're, you've got different scene changes and outfit changes. I mean, is it very time consuming, I wonder? Hugely, yes. I've had a few people say, <laughs> oh, TikToks, they must take, you know,
0: 20 minutes to film or something. And um, and then I sort of, you know, cry inside a little bit <laughs> because, <laughs> no, you know, some of them, some of them might take a, an hour or two. But actually, this sort of content, I try to think through from the idea. So, you know, what are... Oh, helpful things that have come up before in therapy or that are in a book that i like or you know what's sort of new research that's coming out what what's useful to share so there's a bit of research beforehand there's a bit of checking that it's not been outdated or those sorts of things and then trying to turn that kind of boring textbook uh, information into something that's vaguely engaging and entertaining. So then the idea develops and then there's the filming process, which there's always something that goes wrong, isn't there? So, I mean, there have been days when I've filmed all day and I've come up with one TikTok. That That isn't always the case, but it can be. And especially now that we're playing around with you know being a bit more creative so we're doing different transitions and scenes and trying things out so yeah it does take time it's it's worth it if you really nail something and you're proud of what you've created then then i think it's worth it yeah
1: and i feel that we should share in case anyone hasn't seen them I, i think maybe the grain of rice one is that a good example do you think to give for anyone who hasn't seen it do you think you could tell us about your your video about the grain of rice and that analogy
0: Sure. Yeah. So my husband and I were talking about this idea of the sort of one in four and and how common it is for people to struggle with their mental health at some point in their life, but how we could make that sort of visual. So we came up with this idea of of, of using rice, grains of rice as if they were people. So we we ha- we used sort of brown rice and then wild rice to show that sort of distinction with the color so that we could mix them together. So we got that same ratio of the one in four. And we mix the wild rice in with the brown rice. And we said, you know, if if all of those pieces of raw rice are people who are struggling with their mental health, then you can see how the likelihood is that as you go about your day, even if you're lucky enough not to be struggling at that point in your life, the likelihood is you're going to come across somebody who is, uh, whether that be your family, your friends at work. And so the idea was, you know, just be kind. Whoever you're coming across, you, you don't know what they're going through at that point. It's not something you can see. But it's that common. So, you know, it's just about sort of promoting
1: people being a bit kinder to each other, really. Your husband sounds very clever and creative. Is he from a sort of video-y background or he just happens to have good ideas on this?
0: And not at all, not at all. <laughs> um, no, he, he works in a, a very different business doing sales and things like that, but he's quite sort of techie. So he likes using the computer and all the things that I have no idea about. So it could not have happened without him, that's for sure. So I bring the, the psychology side of things and and he brings the, well, let's, this is how we make this work sort of side of things. So yeah, we're a good team and it, and it works out, but he, yeah, he has really created and helps with, because sometimes I'll, I'll be stuck in the, the psychology part of it and, and the complexity of it. And then he'll say, well, maybe this is how it makes sense just to a lay person who hasn't read the textbook or, you know, that sort of thing. So he kind of helps me to, to make it engaging and make sense. He's your layperson sidekick. I yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And you have small kids, don't you, also? Yeah. Yeah, I've got three children. How, three? And how, how old are they or what age span are we talking? They're two and a half, six and eight. My I have four-year-olds and uh, seven-year-olds. And I just think, how do your small children not trash all of your beautiful displays? And, you know, you often are using <laughs> props in your videos. How do you manage that? Is it a big cleanup before kids come home?
0: Uh, Well, um, a lot of my videos have been filmed in my therapy room. So before I was doing all of this, I was running a really small private practice from home. So I have a sort of therapy room out in the garden that I was sort of using as my clinic. And so that's kind of sacred. It stays locked and, and away from child paraphernalia. And so that's where I was, would sort of film my videos and things like that in the evenings when they were all in bed or something like that. So yeah, it stays, it stays away. Although some of the props are stolen from my children, like the, <laughs> the rainbow that's behind me in my, on
1: my shelves. It stays sort of out, of out of the house, which is helpful. Out of sticky finger reach, yeah. okay. And I wonder whether, so TikTok has this 60 second video limit and I've read that this forced you to kind of strip the messages back to what was engaging but also you as you mentioned you're trying to bring a level of of humor there and I thought that was really interesting we don't see that in the therapy room that much I've had therapy for many years and I've only recently found a therapist with you know great sense of humor and it does make all the difference it makes it makes that easier so how important has that been for you?
0: yeah do you know what? it's been a real transformation for me because it's it's really a difficult area to broach because you know people are vulnerable and they might be in a really you know difficult place when they're consuming that kind of content. And so I was sort of nervous about doing that kind of thing. But all, all the time, I think when i when, when I'm doing the mental health awareness stuff, so when I'm trying to say, you know look, these moments that you think are shameful or embarrassing, or you it's something you become self-critical about, it happens to all of us. And these things are actually human. They're part of being a normal human. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, at fault or there's something wrong with you necessarily. So a lot of those things are me taking the mickey out of myself. So I would think of something that, you know, there were some videos where I would sort of play my own brain as a separate, so it would cut to me with like a hoodie on and I would be the brain talking back to myself being self-critical or being really anxious about something. And and all of those things are things that. I think most people, including myself, have experienced at some point. So it's really just saying, wow, look look how sort of, you know, ridiculous is that we this is that we do this to ourselves. And so, yeah, that's how I sort of managed to broach the, the sort of comedy side of it is by thinking about being able to laugh
1: at myself. It works very well. And you have a fine line in hoodies. Anyone who hasn't seen Dr. (laughs) Julie, check out her hoodies. Now, We are here to talk about sadness and you've spoken about how so many of us push it away and how we often keep smiling or pretending it's not there or eat or drink alcohol or take drugs or spend hours watching TV or gaming. And can you talk about what happens when we do push our emotions away?
0: Well, I think when those emotions are maybe small and the event is not highly significant, then sometimes they they do disappear and they don't come back. And then and when you then use that as a sort of go to strategy. But when it comes to bigger things or more significant things, then those feelings often need to be processed in a more complex way. And if we don't do that, they don't necessarily disappear or go anywhere, and they sort of almost lay dormant, waiting for their chance to be thought about and processed and understood and so what happens is if you start pushing things away you know if you have a really difficult time and you push it away with I don't know let's say alcohol or food then you have to keep pushing it away because the minute you stop it all comes flooding back and it takes its chance to sort of be in your conscious. So I, I don't know if you sort of, lots Lots of people try to block out emotion by staying busy uh, and they just fill their time with, you know, do, do, do. And so then those people often become afraid of rest and taking time out. They don't want to sit still because You don't know what's going to come up if you if you allow yourself to quiet your mind. So you, you end up in this sort of trap of either busyness or drinking or eating or whatever it is. And so it's really important, I think, to when you experience something difficult to take time to feel what emotion, whatever emotion comes up to process it and look after yourself throughout that. So it's not just, you know, expose yourself to the pain and be overwhelmed. It's also find ways to self-soothe through that and look after yourself in the way that you would with somebody else. So if a child was in, you know, really heightened distress, you wouldn't just sit and watch them through that. You might, you know, look after them, you might soothe them, you might cuddle them, you might get them a warm drink, you might allow them a chance to talk about it. Then you might, you know, allow them a rest by distracting them for a little while. And then you might talk about it a bit more later. And it's thinking about those things that you do for other people out of compassion, but doing it for yourself.
1: I think that's a really lovely way of describing it, because I've heard people say, you know, pretend you're your best friend or something, or or a coach or or some way. But actually, as a child, I guess, when you are feeling vulnerable, you do, you are like a a child version of yourself. So I think that's a really lovely way of, of thinking about it, of how you would soothe. A child in that way.
0: Yeah, and often in therapy, when we're trying to teach sort of self-compassion and being kinder to yourself, it can be really difficult for people to imagine. You know, well, what does that mean in terms of behaviour? What do I actually do or think and or tell myself? And one of the sort of really great tricks for engaging people with that feeling of compassion is getting them to think about a child that they have unconditional love for that might be their own child it might be you know a niece or nephew or some other family member you know as soon as you think about them being in the same position as you whatever painful situation you're in that compassion just switches on and then you can engage with that feeling and think about how you would engage with them. And often the needs are the same because we're all human. So they might be slightly different in terms of being child and adult, but generally
1: we need that kindness and support. I think that's really lovely. Yeah, it becomes like a non-negotiable, isn't it? You wouldn't, this non-conditional love, you, you just would do the right thing there. And can you talk me through your wave analogy? I love the wave analogy that if a wave is coming, you ready yourself for it then the scene looks different. Are you able to talk us through that?
0: Yeah, so that comes from act therapy. And it's this idea that if we try and hold emotion back, we get in trouble. So I often get people to imagine that they're stood in the sea up to sort of, I don't know, waist height, chest height. And, you know, you know that the waves are coming. If you try to hold any of those waves back from hitting the shore, it's pretty much impossible. It's coming, isn't it? So if you sort of you know, put your arms out and you try to stop that wave, you're gonna take a tumble, you're gonna end up under the water and struggling and get swept off your feet. But if you accept that that wave is coming and it's going to hit, pass through and, and hit the shore, then you take a slightly different stance. So you might put you know, one foot in front of the other, you might sort of bend your knees and brace yourself. So you just make little preparations To look after yourself while that wave passes, which is the self-soothing and all of those sorts of things. And you still might get lifted off your feet, but you're more likely to be able to land back more easily without it causing so much pain and distress to you. So yeah, it's really about thinking of emotions as waves, because if we allow them, if we accept them and we allow them to pass naturally, then they tend to do that. And
1: then they pass. And then the next one comes. And the next one and we've had many of those recently yeah. i feel as though yeah the the pandemic it's just not not going anywhere is it there are there are new challenges all the time and i loved your line about it it's being a pandemic not a productivity contest but how how do you think in your experience with the, the messages that you get and the work that you do in private practice how are people holding up do you think at this stage of, of, a, of a long drawn out pandemic that none of us have any experience for or could prepare for in any way
0: Yeah, I mean, the the experiences have been so different between individuals, haven't they? And and there are people who've lost friends and family members, people who've lost livelihoods and homes, and and other people who perhaps have, you know, continued to work throughout and and haven't really felt too much of a change. You know, there's such a a variety of experiences through the whole thing. But really, I think the, the psychological fallout of the whole thing is only just beginning. You know, as people start to return to work and lose their jobs because businesses are struggling and then there'll be more sort of financial hardship and and you know grief continues for a long long time and and so all of those things will you know there'll be lots of trauma reactions through you know frontline workers and you know family members or people who have survived the virus as well those things tend to unfold over a longer period of time so I think we're yet to to sort of witness all of that,
1: and how about kids? I'm guessing your own personal experience, and then from the people that you hear from, what what do you anticipate being some of the issues that we're going to be facing?
0: Yeah, I think for for younger children, there you know it's understandable that there would have been lots of anxiety in lots of children. But for the majority of children, that will pass and calm over time as the situation changes. But there will be children who don't necessarily recover from that so quickly and might then struggle with something like contamination anxiety, those sorts of things that might need a bit more help and support to to help them overcome it. And I think for very young children as well, you know, a lot of other mums have been saying how their their toddlers are not used to seeing other people or big crowds of people because they just haven't been in those situations in their sort of very early years. So there's gonna be a big adjustment for very young children. But also, for you know adolescents and and middle school children, they've got their own challenges again because they've been old enough to sort of understand you know what's going on and the impact of that. But then they've also been very aware of what they've lost, you know the the time and the the different sort of important life events along the way that they would have missed out on, whether that be you know graduating from school or doing certain exams and knowing that they got what
1: they deserved to get and all of those different things that impact people in different ways yeah and it's the in-person contact as well that I can't help I mean it's hard enough as as a grown-up and knowing things and having established friendships but I think about maybe people going to university or just a point in your life when you just crave that contact and being around your peers and have uh, not had that just seems so so sad You you did a great video about about loneliness and the key signs to watch out for I wonder if you could tell us about what those four key signs are.
0: Yeah, well, I guess in that video, I sort of went through sort of everyday examples that come up. So I think um, one of the examples was about Shopping habits and sort of staying at home away from other people, but maybe filling that that void that you feel with um, shopping online and things like that, which gives you that little hit every time the postman comes and you know or an Amazon parcel. Right, I get it as well. The you postman know, so is like, my friend. <laughs> Ooh, it's, a, it's a parcel. So um, you know you've sort of can f- separate yourself and or isolate yourself from people, or you've been isolated, and so you you find yourself filling that void with something that might be shopping, but it might also be something else. It might be food or alcohol or the other sorts of, or you know Netflix or whatever it is that kind of fill, if you find yourself desperately trying to, you know, fill the, the quiet and fill the void, then that's one of the, the things. One of the other examples was about knowing most of the details about your friends' lives from Facebook. And that's really just about the an example an everyday example of being separate from your friends and being isolated from them and not being able to have face-to-face conversations and all the things that the pandemic has really emphasized I think they were already there but the pandemic's obviously made that a lot worse it's being aware of sort of replacing good quality connections with poor ones and that that can be quite a lonely experience if you are looking online and you see your friends going off and doing things that you're not doing and that sort of thing And there was another one about sort of lacking a sense of a belonging. So, you know, even if you're in groups, maybe you're out with people, you're at a social event or at work, or in a big office with people, then you can still feel lonely when you're surrounded in people. If you don't feel that you can connect with those people on a certain level, or if you don't feel you belong in that group, and that's, that can be really an upsetting experience, I think. And in the same light, then being around people can feel really stressful um, because you're, you know, you start to feel anxious or, or stressed about it. You start to feel upset about it. And so then you might have the urge to withdraw. So it's strange that you're, you start with loneliness, but then you have the urge to move away from people and disconnect even further. So it becomes this sort of cycle that keeps that loneliness going. So it was really just sort of putting, it, putting in a few everyday examples that, that people could relate to
1: to say, well, you know, is there loneliness underneath those sorts of behaviours? And you you staged a party in your house, which I very much enjoyed when you did that one. <laughs> your very own social situation. And, and if we're feeling those things, which I'm sure so many of us are, what do we do about it? Is it, as you say, this idea of you have to put yourself out there and, and try and reconnect, even if it's scary? Is it just doing the thing with some fear.
0: Yeah, and I think loneliness is is hugely underestimated. Like it, it's just the research has really sort of increased on it over the last sort of 10 or so years about the impact it has on your health and it's it you know people will say oh, well I'm you know I'm lonely and and carry on and carry on. But actually it's it's a health issue. It's a physical health issue, it's a mental health issue, it affects everything. And so first of all is to take it seriously and then address it as a significant need. And and yes, that does mean doing difficult things that you won't feel like doing a bit, a bit like when, you know, someone is depressed, they get the urge to withdraw and part of recovery is going against that urge. And it's the same with loneliness. So loneliness will give the urge to withdraw and escape the feeling using whatever it be, TV or something like that. And part of breaking that cycle is noticing the urge to do things that aren't going to help and going against that urge. And so it's horrible and difficult, but actually once you break that cycle a certain number of times, it becomes easier over time. Yeah, it does mean doing the difficult things and getting out there, but you can be creative with it as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean going into situations that that feel absolutely terrifying and awful. It can mean finding situations that work for you or a little bit more, feel a little bit more manageable or meeting with people that you're more likely to
1: feel a connection with. But you have to do the hard things. Yeah, <laughs> and and you have such a broad audience. I I was wondering, you sort know, of looking through the the videos that you've done so far, whether there are any key life stages that are surprisingly overrepresented, perhaps in your audience. Is is it mostly young people? Is it uh, no? I think people would
0: imagine that sort of uh, the TikTok followers are all very very young. Uh, but actually, I think on, on Instagram, my followers are most the majority of them are between sort of eighteen and forty so and I think 25 to 35 is a sort of bracket with lots of lots of people in and lots of women sort of three quarters women yeah there's that sort of group of people really who who are are dealing with you know getting out into the world and facing all of those unrealistic expectations about what you should do and when you should do it by and all that kind of thing
1: so yeah
0: it's not they're not sort of as young as I I thought they
1: perhaps would have been on on TikTok and things I always wonder about you know like new mothers that was incredibly lonely time I found because you know if you are very fortunate or well supported then that's one thing but otherwise you you know you're tired and you're up at all the hours and then also the the dip in life satisfaction in In your forties, the um the U-shaped curve of happiness. I wondered whether that was they were key demographics as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think certainly that sort of maternal uh sort of period where people tend to start having children is a is a big interest for me, um, partly because of some of the work that I did in the NHS and and women that I worked with, and even once I was in private practice as well, um, understanding how difficult that is and how often that's a that's not a, a fault of women, that's a fault of our society and how we're set up and you know while there is while it can be easier for women who perhaps have more sort of financial stability actually the fact that our society is set up that you're generally going to be home alone with a baby makes that so such a vulnerable time And, and a woman's mental health is never more vulnerable than in the first year after they give birth so We have to really, really think about what we're doing here. And, you know, because the impact is huge on the mothers and then can be on the children too, if if it continues and stuff. So, yeah, it's a real sort of area of interest for me. I haven't covered hugely yet, but I'm thinking of sort of doing a bit more more
1: content in that area. I think it'd be great. I think it's society as a whole, isn't it, though, because those mothers and those children will end up being people's colleagues, people's bosses, people's employers, employees. It, it's everyone. There's no one for whom childcare does not have an impact and the way we look after mothers. And I'd love to know more about your own journey into this field and, and what drew you to it. What were you like growing up?
0: Yeah, so um, I had no idea even really what psychology was. I, I always really enjoyed, I was an avid reader, so I would read a lot, but I wouldn't read necessarily sort of you know, science fiction or fantasy things. I read things about everyday life for human beings. And so that was always a real interest is sort of very human stories. And I always loved that. And then there was a chance to study psychology at A-level At my uh, sixth form. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Let's have a go. And still just had no real idea of what the future held, but really enjoyed it. And so I thought, well, yeah, let's have a go at that at at university. And and still really didn't know what I wanted to do with that until I found myself in a a research assistant post after graduating in an addictions unit. And there was somebody there who was going ahead to do the clinical training and so just sort of learned about it all then. So all the way along I've just sort of followed my interests rather than having a set, you know, game plan and all that kind of thing.
1: So yeah, I've just sort of followed what I was interested in all the way along. And here we are. <laughs> so was addiction your first sort of area of expertise or that just happened to be what you were in at the time
0: so I was a research assistant at that point so I would just graduated from my degree I hadn't done any sort of clinical training or anything like that um so yeah it was as a research assistant say so probably not my expertise but but a good sort of area that got me stuck into sort of clinical work and um motivational interviewing those sorts of skills that really fascinated me so
1: and can you what is motivational interviewing I hear this term often but I'm sure many people are not entirely clear
0: Yeah. So it's a, it's a set of sort of clinical skills. So a way of talking to someone, a way of interviewing someone, certain strategies that you might use to help someone who is considering change of some sort to help them contemplate that and move towards action and contemplating action and considering what might be needed to move them towards that. So it's not about sort of persuading anyone or you know brainwashing anyone into you know being motivated but it's it's a set of skills that help someone to move along that cycle of change towards taking action and it's used a lot in in sort of things like addiction services but but lots of other services too because any mental health service or physical health service as well change is difficult and and if you've got to make any kind of lifestyle change having a clear reason why you're doing that and that it's important to you helps you to take action so just telling someone to do something doesn't really help um, but if they come to their own conclusion that they know what they want to do and exactly
1: why and why it's so important to them then they're much more likely to do it okay so yes can't just tell people what to be doing okay um, <laughs> and i know that you use a range of psychological therapies depending on the individual. I wonder if you could talk us through some of these from cognitive behavioral therapy to acceptance and commitment therapy. I feel as though there are many acronyms that get heard, but I think as as we talked about, the lay person doesn't always quite know what they are. And it's helpful to understand what might suit us best.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'll give you a sort of quick rundown. So CBT stands for cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive is a sort of posh word for thoughts, and it's really about that combination of um, how our thoughts and our behavior and our physical state all influence each other and influence how we feel. So the idea is, you know, I often say to people, they come to therapy and they say, well, I I want to feel different. I've got some feelings that I have and I don't want them. And there's some that I'm missing out on I would like back. And we can't just sort of wake up and choose how to feel in the morning be great if we could say, you know, today I want to feel joy, but you know, and then it would arrive, but it doesn't. But we know that how we feel is so heavily impacted by what we do and what we don't do and what we focus our thoughts and attention on and how we treat our bodies. And so we can use those other three things to influence how we feel. So you can make small changes in what you're doing or how you're talking to yourself or other people and what you're doing to your body. And those will have an influence on how you feel at some point. So that's a sort of CBT model, roughly. Acceptance and commitment therapy, which is often listed as ACT. Well, that that metaphor that we talked about with the waves, that's from ACT. Mm So that's about learning how to not push emotion away, but to uh, allow it to be there, to look after yourself through that and build your awareness of it but also to get really clear on your values. So rather than sort of chasing happiness, you you get really clear on what matters most to you, what's important to you, what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what you want to represent as a person or what you want to be as a person. Those represent the sort of the paths that, that you follow in life. So the things that you want to stay close to. And then if you're sort of living in line with your values, you're generally more happy than if you're not living in line with your values. So it's really about sort of valued living and being able to tolerate those waves of pain or discomfort that come along during life. So solution focus is just this kind of set of techniques really that might be used in conjunction with another therapy where you focus for a little while away from the problem. So often involves asking people about, you know, when is that specific problem not a problem? When do, When is it not there? Or when is it less of a problem? You know, what is it you're doing that helps? And so you start to look at, at, similar to CBT, where it looks at the impact of the things that you do, it really kind of deep dives into really specific details about when you do that, does it help? Does it make it worse when you do this? When, and, and so you're really looking at, what small things can I change that bring me to feeling at my best or feeling better or this thing being less of a problem. So it's really just a slightly shift of focus. But
1: it's it's really, really helpful for some people. Okay, it's a good practical one. And then the final on my my hot hot acronym countdown, dialectical behavior therapy. Yeah, DBT
0: is a a really intensive year-long therapy in which you have individual therapy once a week alongside a group skills-based educational program. You, you have your individual therapy, which is very individualized and you go through your formulation and things have happened to you. And then in the skills group, it's it's a learning experience. So you learn emotion regulation skills, uh, distress tolerance skills, sort of how to soothe your way through painful emotion and how to prevent emotions from being so intense. And, and it's really about teaching people to manage difficult emotion healthily and safely. So lots of the people who may be you know, use that therapy in the NHS might have, you know, uh, more dangerous ways of managing emotions. So there might be self harm, or there might be, you know, drug use, that sort of thing. But actually, the skills that are taught in the group are generally life skills that are helpful for all of us. So, you know, I've picked up on a few of them, and put them in videos, because I think things like having a self soothing box is a great idea for lots of people, where you kind of if you find yourself in real trouble emotionally and you feel overwhelmed you don't want to have to think through what do i need what's the best thing to do right now you want it right there so i get people to make a little kind of just a shoebox with things inside that that help to soothe them through really difficult moments and you just put it you know under the bed or somewhere that's easy to access so that if you find yourself in a really tough place that's your go to that's your little kind of SOS sort of box and it might just be really simple things it might be a little note that says call this number and it might be a best friend who always says the right thing or it might be a journal that you can write things in or it might be you know well back in the day we used to say put a mixtape in but that's a bit out of date now is <laughs> uh, you know it's, it's the music that helps or you know those sorts of things that can help to soothe you through a really difficult moment
1: Isn't that terrible? I immediately thought Maltesers and take my nurse, probably not. (laughs) I was going to say chocolate bar and I held (laughs) it back. Well done. Oh, my goodness. That's so fascinating. Thank you. I think that's really helpful because it can be quite baffling to anyone new to therapy, hearing all of these acronyms and trying to understand them. I know that you've also worked with the military. And I don't know if you can talk about this, but I found that fascinating. I'd love to I'd love to know about the work that you've done with things like combat trauma Mm -hmm. and addiction psychosis and and any kind of differences do you think you found with how much humans can go through and how much we can move on with? Sure so um, it was in my
0: final year of training my sort of specialist placement was at a very small acute ward that was specifically for people in the MOD so all sorts of personnel whether they be soldiers or otherwise coming along who were uh, really struggling with their mental health and uh, you know a, a massive learning experience for me and then, as I when I qualified, my my supervisor on, on that placement left his job, and so I sort of took on the role and and continued in in that role um, for about a year or two after a qualification, and it, it, yeah, a, a huge learning experience. Um, in hindsight, a really a steep learning curve. You know, sort of being exposed to stories of extreme trauma as a sort of you know newly qualified. clinician was difficult but also taught me a huge amount and but but you know yes people from the military go through really really awful experiences but also Lots of other people do as well, but they're just different. So when I've worked in crisis teams and things like that, there might be other people who who have not been in the military, but have had just awful life experiences and have to work so, so hard to get through them. And so I think all of those experiences just sort of play into each other and you realize everybody's human and really awful things can happen. Yeah. And I, and I think also, you know, in therapy, sometimes people are working to smaller goals that that take a long time to get towards, but it doesn't make them any less likely to get there. You you just have to kind of adjust your pace and what you're doing. And it definitely sort of put my faith in therapy. I understand how, it, you know, that it works for people. When you see people come back from a really, really dark place that you don't imagine anyone could recover from, it helps you to sort of believe in what you're doing.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yes, to really see what what is possible. And I wonder... What helps you when you are feeling sad or when you're finding days challenging? Which, you know, I, even as a
0: kid, I used to, whenever I was sort of struggling with something and couldn't really sort of work it out in my head, I would always write things down. And I would, I, you know, not sort of keep a journal every day sort of person and, um good in that in that way. But it was just whenever I was struggling with something, I'd always get the journal out and start writing things out about, you know, how I felt. And then once I was in training, I realized, wow, there's this whole world of research about how helpful that is, sort of creative writing and expressive writing about how you feel and what's going on. And so, you know, that's something I really live by and sort of recommend to a lot of people because I've, you know, experienced how helpful that is myself. So that's a go-to for me. But also I guess moving my body is a big one. So I will go out and I will sort of just jog and run in a green space if that's accessible. And that really, that's a real sort of energy shift for me. So I guess the writing down is the emotional expression and, and getting something out of my brain and onto the page so that I can work out what's going on. And the running is more of a, a that biological shift of, you know, you always you never feel like going, you always come back more energized and feeling a little bit more, optimistic about the world and and there's some amazing research out there about how exercise it makes you more sensitive to to experiencing joy so you're actually more open to experiencing positive emotions once you've exercised and things like that which I I definitely uh you know I definitely feel on a sort of
1: anecdotal level that's lovely yeah I I love the there's um Dr. Brendan Stubbs has looked at what happens when we don't exercise and found that I think within a week you you start to feel worse just by by doing less. So there's how do you how do you get yourself out there as you say on days when you just don't feel like it?
0: I don't always so I don't do it perfectly. <laughs> there are days when I don't feel like it and I don't do it and I experience the effects of that. but certainly on the days when I do get out. I always come back thinking, I should do this every day. you know. <laughs> so yeah, I, I definitely don't do it perfectly. But yeah, there, there have been days when I've actually used, you know, things that sort of I learned with the, the military work about how you, you go against the urge. So you have the urge to stop, or you have the urge not to do something. You have to experience that urge, recognize what is most important to you, and go against the urge. So, you know, there's that we often do that in dbt where we'll get people to be aware of urges and recognize that they can act opposite to them so we'd often get people to hold like a polo or something in their mouth and say well don't crunch you know that kind of game yes. we used to play as kids and and that is just a, a really simple way of acknowledging an urge noticing that urge to do something but recognizing that you don't have to do it you can go opposite to it so sometimes with exercise and things like that i think it's about recognizing that urge to not do it will always be there
1: um, but you can choose otherwise if it's really important to you. That's a great answer. And and I wonder, knowing what you do intellectually and professionally, you know, you still have three really young kids. You are still busy. You still have a private practice. Is, is it enough to keep you standing in the waves?
0: Yeah, so it's, um, <laughs> I think the thing with all these tools is it doesn't make you invincible. It makes you human, but with a bunch of tools. So I think at any point any human sit in the waves, you know, a tsunami can come at any point for any one of us and life happens and think, you know, those waves can get bigger than you can handle. They can sweep you off your feet. But if you've got all these tools that are well-practiced from even the good time, you know, it's good to practice those tools when times are good, because then they're easier to practice. And then, you know, if life happens and a tsunami hits and, and you are completely, you know, swept off your feet, then It's about getting back on track. So it's not about living perfectly, never experiencing sadness or trauma or any of those things. It's about finding ways to get back up and live a life that has meaning and purpose for you and in which you can find some degree of joy and love and creativity and all those things. So yeah, for me, it's about, you know, there might be days when I'm completely swept off my feet because something awful has happened. That's okay, as long as I get back up. And I get back up again.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I think that people will find that really helpful to hear. And I, I noticed when you were talking about what matters, it's around meaning and joy. And I wonder, in a lot of the work I have done into happiness, the reason I wrote how to be sad is because I noticed a lot of people I spoke to had had such a, a sort of almost an obsession with happiness that they were quite phobic of feeling sad. Do you think we have, as a society, got a bit of a skewed or perhaps narrow definition? of happiness as, as this sort of goal, as this always smiling, never experiencing the sad things or doing the tough things right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's generally sort of promoted on social media as well, isn't it? Is this idea, I mean, everybody puts their best foot forward, don't they? And, and so that's understandable that that kind of thing happens. But yeah, I think we have part of that conversation about mental health is acknowledging that all emotions and all experiences in terms of positive and negative are human they're not necessarily a fault or something that's gone wrong. And so, yeah, sadness is part of being human and, and we need to, to learn the skills to, to manage it just like everything else. And, and that's where, I mean, and this year I've been sort of working on, on my book, Why Has Nobody Told Me That Before? And it really came from, uh, well, the, the title came from those people in therapy that were saying, this skill is really helpful and it's really changing things for me. Why Why do I not know this? Why has no one told me this? So I've sort of filled that bit with all this, the different skills that, that help you with those everyday ups and downs that happen to human beings that can help us to get back on track and just help us to get back up when, when things get really
1: tricky. That's some very wise advice. I can't wait to read that one. And finally, I like to end by asking all of my guests with all of your experience and your wisdom um, that you have now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well?
0: Well, I would say keep going with the writing because that's a good mm-hmm. stuff. I would say the the things that I reflected on and I wrote about and I talked about with, with friends or whoever, that's the stuff that I tended to get through and uh, resolve and have a sort of healthy response to It's the stuff you block out that causes you trouble later on. So I guess I would say turn towards it, look at it. And look after yourself during the process because it will be painful and it hurts a lot and and keep going. So, yeah, I think don't be afraid to look at it, reflect on it. And then if you need the support along the way, get that.
1: Don't be afraid to be with it. I think that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast, online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.